when I was home last, my room is has like an awning out the window. And I was there in the summer and I had my computer on my bed and I like hit it during the night and it flew out the window and like hit the awning and flew off. And I was watching this, it was like three in the morning and it flew off into the yard and I went and got it and it was fine. Like the next day, it just like completely worked. I was amazed. <laughs> That's awesome. Hello and welcome back to Yesterday in Travel. This is our 10th episode and the first episode of our second season. As always, I'm joined by Brian. Hello. Hey, Kalina. Um, thank you for saying my name because I realized I didn't introduce myself. That's a little spiel. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to the 1840s, specifically when Frederick Douglass decided to leave the United States for a bit and travel to Ireland and England. Decided is not exactly the right word. Douglass had recently published his autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, in 1845. Although Douglas had escaped slavery, he was still in danger of being tracked down by the man who claimed to quote-unquote own him, and the release of his book doubled the threat. As a result, Douglas goes across the Atlantic. His trip to Ireland would prove to be an inflection point in his career, his thinking about race and class, and a key to his financial freedom. We'll get into it in just a minute, but first, let's check in with the state of travel these days. Brian. So I have a few things that I wanted to talk about in terms of travel news. It's been a long, hard road, mm. but I think there's actually, you know, with the vaccines and in the place we're at with travel, there are still interesting ways that people and cities and companies are adapting. So the first thing that I brought was a story about Amsterdam. Did you see this? Oh, I might have. Amsterdam is restricting access to, to the marijuana coffee shops for tourists. Mm. So, but more broadly, actually, that was sort of the headline. But really, over the past month or two, the mayor of Amsterdam put out this like letter to the citizenry and is basically trying to get them to start rethinking the way that they do tourism in light of the experience they've been having with almost no tourists over the past, whatever, 9, 11, 12 months mm. um, since the pandemic started. So I, it just felt like a really interesting and apt story to, to bring because when we kind of started the podcast, we were thinking a lot about how the pandemic was going to be changing people's perspective on mm -hmm. tourism and the pros and cons of tourism and over tourism. And it, it feels like Amsterdam is now finally getting to this point where in the same way, I think Venice maybe four or five months ago was like, you know, it's actually kind of nice without all these tourists. But at the same time, huge amount of revenue comes in. Um, Amsterdam gets 19 million visitors a year. Wow. And, it you know, that's a huge part of their economy. It's not like they're it's, they're not like some places where it's the overwhelming bulk of their economy is fueled by tourism because it's a city of almost a million people. But they they're in this phase right now where they're rethinking tourism. You know, one aspect of it is restricting the coffee shops to locals only, mm -hmm. but they're doing other things like requiring permits for Airbnbs and short rentals. So you have to actually register with the local government and get a permit because they've seen too many Airbnbs going up and they've seen people splitting apartments. They now won't let you, if you have a, an apartment of a certain size, they won't let you like cut it into two smaller apartments to rent one out on Airbnb. Mm. 
That's good. So yeah, that's good. Um, and it should also like Amsterdam is a city with so many different facets. Yeah, that's a really good point. There's so much going on in that city. Museums. It's a beautiful city. Yeah. And... Yeah. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to bring up is about a film festival, a Swedish film festival. The Jutteborgia Film Festival this year is um, is completely virtual. They have 60 films that they're screening online and, you know, people can watch them from their homes, sign up, download, pay for whatever. But they sort of as a publicity stunt, they are offering up one person to visit this remote island off like the western coast of Sweden where there's a lighthouse and an old quartermaster or whatever the lighthouse master's quarters that's been turned into a little hotel and they're going to have all these people apply to win this prize and the prize is you go to the island for seven days alone with all of the films from the film festival and they've set up like a screening room and you have enough food and supplies for seven days and you get to have your own one-person film festival Wow. On the island by yourself. And they're going to have like equipment so you can like stream your daily video diaries to everyone else. Oh my God. This sounds like the start of a really weird like horror movie. It is. It is great horror movie. (laughs) It's also the island is named after the Swedish word for the Lord's Prayer because sailors, because it's so rocky and craggy around the island that whenever sailors pass it, they say the Lord's Prayer Oh, wow. When they're passing because it's so dangerous. Jeez. Wow. I'm envisioning like ghost sailors and being alone in a lighthouse. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Well, that sounds great if you love film and being alone, though. Yeah, you can go to their website and you can apply. And the application is literally just send them an email explaining why you think you deserve to win. Is It's open to non-Swedes? Uh, yeah, I think it, it didn't say anything. It said it's it's open to anyone as far as I understand. Cool. <laughs> That's wild. Yeah. Next one is um, I noticed that actually two days ago on the 12th of January, it was the 25th anniversary mm-hmm. of the first American astronaut of Hispanic descent to go to space. Hmm. So in 1986, this guy named Frank Ramon Chang Diaz, he's actually also Chinese. His grandfather is Chinese. Huh. He was born in Costa Rica came to the States for for high school and ended up immigrating to the United States, became an astronaut and ended up taking seven total trips into space to the space station. Mm. And actually, interestingly, his so his grandfather, who is Chinese, immigrated to Costa Rica in like the 40s or 50s after um, or no, maybe it was prior to that, I guess. I'm trying to remember when the the Boxer Rebellion was. But I think oh, it was boy. like more was, turn of the yeah. century. Mm-hmm. So in China, there was this thing called the Boxer Rebellion where all these people rose up. And her, we actually may do an episode on the Boxer Rebellion because Herbert Hoover happened to be there. And I think we discussed yeah, it at one yeah. point. Yeah, his wife was like there and just, yeah, dealing it with it with a plum. And it was great. Yeah, he was like working for some mining companies in like Australia or in, in East Asia and yeah. ended up in it. But anyway, that Boxer Rebellion led this uh, Chinese guy to move to Costa Rica where he then started a family and one thing led to another and then we got Franklin Ramon Chang Diaz in space up in space yeah huh. okay next did you hear about Airbnb's announcement that they're canceling all the reservations in DC during inauguration week I did yes yeah so they're yeah they're reimbursing hosts and refunding all guests for any 
reservations that have already been made, and they're blocking off all the calendars around for the week around the the inauguration. Mm. Wow. They're also, I got a news alert earlier, they're closing the whole mall for inauguration, which is sad. It's going to look kind of different this year, but also it's not like you could have a huge crowd anyway, right? Yeah. And I think Biden has been telling people not to come. I think Biden's doing mm. like the anti-inauguration. Right. Um, Lady, Lady Gaga is singing the national anthem, which I thought was kind of an interesting choice, but she's a great singer. So <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I sense Lady Gaga beef. Oh, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of hers. Mm-hmm. Not, I don't dislike her. I just I don't know. I watched her documentary and thought she came off as kind of strange. I did not see the documentary. I'm pretty neutral, but lean. I lean positive with Lady Gaga. <laughs> All right. Um, Well, my travel stories are more overarching and a little more depressing. (laughs) What I'm surprised you didn't mention, I thought you were going to mention, because this might have repercussions this year, is Pompeo designating Cuba as, I'm not sure what exactly, but labeling them with this terrorist brand now. That seems like that might be a problem for people going to Cuba. But I don't really know the details. I just know that that was was done recently. Yeah, yeah. I know the details. They've been leaking this for a while now and they've been working on it for a while. And everyone in the Cuba world is like every now and then it like comes back up and people are like, oh, is this going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And it finally did happen. And Mm. a lot of actually some of the news articles that came out about it when it happened were not completely accurate from what I understand. But because they were saying that it might destroy Biden's ability to like make moves on Cuba or severely delay any any reversal of Trump's policies on Cuba. And there have been people who I've seen refuting that and saying it's like a month or two's delay at most because it, all it requires is like for this study to be done mm. in order to reverse it. They officially have to like conduct a study within the government and that that's the sort of thing that like they could turn around pretty quickly. And there's actually a lot of movement within the new administration coming in to actually work with Cuba and, and to get turn that that all around. So it's hard to know who to believe. I certainly hope for quickly turning around those all the Trump regulations, Mm. because I know some people in Cuba. I I have friends down there and I have lots of friends that live here that are Cuban who I think, you know, this stuff restricts some of their ability to go back and forth and bring things to their family down there. And there's a lot going on in Cuba right now just with the economy. So it's like it's a tough time to restrict travel um, from the US. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like maybe it's not it's not for very long and people will be able to start moving back and forth, ideally soon. Yeah. All right. Well, stay tuned, I suppose, for that. Um, my other pieces of news have to do with the coronavirus. Yay. Um, you know, there's the variant in the UK, which has resulted in all these travel restrictions. From, from the UK and from Ireland, which is on topic for us today. And related to the vaccine, this hasn't, I mean, no one's made, I don't think anyone's made a decision or no country's passed a law on this yet, but to travel in the future, if you're going to need to have some sort of proof of being vaccinated, that's sort of a conversation I think that's starting right now without any uh, resolution for the moment. But something also to keep an eye on what's going to happen with that, if airlines are going to try to enforce anything, if countries will, if that'll be legal, what sort of fights are on the horizon over, over vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. It's really been like 
only like South Korea and maybe China that have have even like been able to put together a contact tracing system that is minimally effective. And so it's like these big, broad Mm. programs to try to keep track of things. It seems like the West is just completely unwilling and unable to implement anything like that. So I don't have a lot of high hopes for this. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely I think it's gonna be a question in the next couple couple of weeks but um anyway i think that's enough enough of travel news so we can dive into dive into frederick Douglass. so do you want to start by giving us a backstory on frederick Douglass and why he's important yeah sure let's we'll take it back to when do you learn about frederick Douglass? middle school elementary school probably middle school to, to the school days so frederick Douglass was born a slave in maryland his name originally was frederick augustus washington bailey He said his mom gave him that name because she wanted him to have this like grand eloquent name. He uh, presumably uh, his mother was black and presumably his father was the slave owner that that was the owner of his mother. But he was biracial, white father and a black mother. He never knew his age or his place of birth, but actually he chose. So his mother always called him her little Valentine. So when he was old enough, he chose his birthday and he chose the 14th of February because of that, Mm. which is just excruciatingly cute. But (laughs) when he got a little older, he was taught to read and write by the wife of one of his owners, quote unquote owners. And then when he was in his late teens, early 20s, he attempted escape um, once or twice, wasn't successful. Then finally, he actually had he had already met his future wife and and sort of started a relationship with this woman named Anne Murray, who was a free black woman in Maryland. And she started helping him plan his escape. She got him a sailor's outfit um, and then he got some forged protection papers from a free black sailor at the ports in Maryland that he knew. And that helped him. He, he got on a train and those are sort of his papers just in case he was questioned. Um, and he made it on the train up through Maryland, ended up on a steamship up to Philadelphia and made his way to New York City. So by the early 40s, he was free. He was actually moved to Massachusetts, to New Bedford, Massachusetts, with his wife, Anne Murray, who who came up also from Baltimore. And he started to get involved with the abolitionist community, became friends with William Lloyd Garrison, the famous abolitionist, who was the writer-editor of the Liberator abolitionist newspaper. And he started writing for them. And it was at that point in the early 40s that he started writing his autobiography, which when it was published became a huge hit. It made him very well known. And he had been speaking already. He had been lecturing and giving speeches for the abolitionist movement. And there was lots of there was skepticism that like this couldn't be true or his story wasn't true. And so he part of the reason why he wrote his story was to be able to put in all the details to be able to prove and mm. use names and actually be able to prove that his story was real. But anyway, once it was published, he became well known. He became like the most well known escaped slave in mm. the United States. Yeah. I, I just wanted to set like what the United States looked like at that point, because the 1840s were basically mm-hmm. the peak of the number of slaves in the country when he was becoming famous. Mm-hmm. It was this weird moment where like, before the 1840s, there had been a bunch of new states and questions about what would be slave states and what would be free states. And then in the 1850s, the same thing would happen. But the 1840s were kind of like a weird, quote unquote, peaceful moment where at the same time there were more slaves than ever. So the country was in a very weird place. And even though he escaped, like he was still very much in danger. Yeah, yeah. So he was 
he was well known and the book made him even more well known and his abolitionist friends William Lord Garrison and others were worried that he you know he was a, still technically a fugitive from his owner in in the south and so people were worried that someone was going to track mm-hmm. him down and and try to bring him back into slavery so um they convinced him to go overseas to go to Europe and to to spend some time away from the United States so that's what he did. So uh, I guess he, he took a, a ship across the sea. Do you want to give us a, yes. a little... Tell me about this ship, the Cambria, that he took, a steamship. Yeah, the Cambria. Yeah. It's interesting. I did some research about what it was like to cross the sea in the mm-hmm. 1840s. Um, that's something that always just sounds absolutely terrifying to me. But anyway, he, he boarded the ship. It's it's a little over 200 feet long. It's called a paddle steamer, which means that it's a steamship, but it uses it like powers paddles which sounds so slow the crossing well interesting you say that because the crossing took two weeks which was actually a huge improvement over what it had been before which was usually over over a month um it was kind of a i mean it sounds like i guess it was the newest technology in some ways and like really great but in others it wasn't that comfortable it was mostly used for mail uh delivery and Charles Dickens took one of these ships to cross the Atlantic at one point, and he described it as a gigantic hearse with windows. So awesome. Ugh, yikes. <laughs> Aside from the ship, you know, being not the most comfortable thing in the world, Douglas has a first class ticket, but they refuse to seat him in first class. He's sent to steerage and he's he's accompanied by some white abolitionists and in solidarity. They some of them go with him. Some of them go down and like visit him all the time and. He's allowed to come up on deck and, you know, see the water as they cross, which I guess is a small consolation. Um, He sells his autobiography while he's on deck to people. And at one point, as they're approaching Ireland, they can see Ireland. Douglas is invited by the captain, who at this point is a little bit inebriated, to give a speech about slavery to the passengers. So he starts to talk and some people start to shout him down and heckle him and his friends are shouting back at them. And Douglas eventually kind of like escapes and goes back to steerage. But this one guy is saying he's going to go track him down and throw him overboard. And an Irish soldier says, you know, I'm going to throw you overboard if you you know, try to do that, which kind of settles everything down. But quite an eventful. I wanted to throw in here, interestingly, so, you know, he's going to Ireland. He happens to have this experience on the boat where an Irish soldier has his back. And when he was young, he writes in his autobiography at one point when he's a slave before he's run away, he has this interaction with these these two Irishmen unloading some stone down at the wharf near where he lives. And they ask him if he's a slave. And then he says, the good Irishmen seem to be deeply affected by my statement. He said to the other that it was a pity so so fine a little fellow as myself should be a slave for life. He said it was a shame to hold me. They both advised me to run away to the north, that I should find friends there and that I should be free. I pretended not to be interested in what they said and treated them as if I had not understood them, for I feared they might be treacherous. White men have been known to encourage slaves to escape and then to get the reward, catch them and return them to their masters. I was afraid that these seemingly good men might use me so, but I nevertheless remembered their advice. And from that time, I resolved to run away. So it was actually these Irishmen who gave him the idea like, oh, you should run away. And he was nervous at the time that like they were maybe not Mm. good guys, because I think, you know, you had to be on the lookout for horrible white people. Yeah. God, I didn't know that people would be like, yeah, you should run away. And then they would capture them for money. That's horrible. It's difficult. Ugh, What an awful 
uh, history we have. But anyway, so at various points, yeah, he had these interactions with Irish people. And it's, I mean, we'll talk about it, but it's not necessarily coincidental. Mm. Yeah. Although when he arrives in Ireland, at the time, you know, there are distinct like parallels between Irish society and American society in that there's Mm -hmm. like a class system. Like Irish Catholics are second class citizens compared to British Protestants in Ireland who own all the land. If you're a Catholic in Ireland, there are all these things you can't do. You can't have certain jobs. You can't be seated in parliament, which is something that happens when character we'll get to in our story, I think. That at the same time, Douglas arrives is the beginning of the potato famine. So this is a, obviously a monumental moment in Irish and American history because a lot of Irish people end up coming to the United States. And it's also, um, although Irish independence won't be for quite some time, like 60 years, when Douglas is there, it's sort of like beginning to build at the time that he's there, this idea that they can throw off the British and and they they do that in the 1920s um, with the Republic of Ireland. But anyway, those ideas are all around at the time he's there. And so, it, you know, it comes from a place that has a lot of similar similar stuff going on when he arrives. So what what happens when he actually goes when he arrives? Yeah. So his trip to Ireland, initially, it's it's supposed to be it, he's not sure how long he's going to stay there. He's not sure how well he'll be received. And all of that is left a little bit up in the air. But he ends up spending at first months and then decides to spend several years um, in Ireland and England. And when he gets there, he starts to give speeches and lectures. He is very well received and he travels around to churches and other social and political associations giving talks about his experience in the United States. And he's pretty critical of the United States. He talks about how he feels like he has no country. He's not He's not patriotic because his experience of the United States was not a positive one. And so he's he's pretty rough on the United States, obviously, for good reason. But he's you know, he he starts traveling around and his speeches are really well attended. In some cases, they you know, people describe them in the news as being packed to the gills. You know, these rooms are just completely packed, all standing room. And he also at one point, a few months after he gets there, he actually meets Daniel O'Connell, who was someone who was an inspiration to him. Daniel O'Connell is known as the Liberator in Ireland. That was his nickname. And he was the most famous repeal proponent, the idea that Ireland should repeal the union between them and the British, um, which subjugated them to being like a second second class citizens. And Frederick Douglass, actually, when he was learning to read some of the reading material that he read early on was pieces written by Daniel, the liberator O'Connell. So he had he had heard of him. He knew of him. He was he followed his his speeches and he was a huge fan. So at, at one point, he finally attended a public uh, speaking event in which Daniel O'Connor spoke, or Daniel O'Connell spoke. He listened at the back, and then eventually at the end of the speech, he went and he actually met him. And apparently the way the story goes is the hall had kind of cleared out a bit, and so that's why he was able to get up to the front and meet him. Um, and and then Daniel O'Connell asked him to, to speak to the remaining people there. And so he made some brief remarks mm-hmm. and and, you know, attempted to kind of like give his spiel on his his life and why he was there. And so that was a huge 
huge moment in his life meeting someone who had inspired him all these years. But in general, he his mind was just blown by the fact that in Ireland, you know, he had left the quote unquote land of the free and gone to this monarchy. And yet he felt more free than he had ever felt in his life in this place. And he wrote in his autobiography, uh, he said, I gaze around in vain for one who will question my equal humanity, claim me as his slave or offer me an insult. I employ a cab. I'm seated beside white people. I reach the hotel. I enter the same door. I am shown into the same parlor. I dine at the same table and no one is offended. I find myself regarded and treated at every turn with the kindness and deference paid to white people. So it, it, it really strikes him that Ireland is just so different from the United States, where even in the North, there is still racism. And he's always worried behind every corner, there are bounty hunters and people looking for escaped slaves to bring them back to slavery in the South. So, and he also starts to see the plight of the Irish people, as we were discussing, as uh, similar to the, the plight of African slaves in, in the United States. And he starts to draw some parallels in his rhetoric. And it sort of opens up his eyes a little bit, I think, to thinking about equality of peoples as more than just a black and white thing in the United States. He starts to broaden his conceptualization of that, of the way race plays a factor in inequality, but also the way race and skin color isn't necessarily always the main factor. And that equality is what's important. Yeah, it can be these artificial designations like class and religion alongside race that people decide to differentiate each other by. Yeah, I think I think it must be the Irish who said this, who call him the black O'Connell, mm -hmm. though they see parallels with him too. I think significantly from all of this is that I think it's it's women who do this. I'm not 100% sure, but it's abolitionists in Britain who purchased Douglas's freedom. So when he goes back to the United States after a few years, he can go back without the fear of being hunted down. He goes back a free, a free man. Yeah. After this transformative experience where he's, he's gone from a well-known abolitionist in the United States among Americans to being a, this international statesman and spokesperson for the abolitionist movement in the United States. But he's now known across the UK and Europe, and he heads home with this new stature. And I don't know about this. I have no basis. I don't, I'm just wondering. But I know, you know, when the Civil War breaks out, there is talk about like Britain maybe coming, helping the South. And I wonder if him being there and talking about the, like the evils of slavery mm -hmm. had any impact in thinking about whether or not to do that. But I have no idea. I'm just I'm just curious about what that might have huh. uh, and how that might influence things down the line mm -hmm. in 20 years. Huh. Yeah, no, he definitely when he was in Ireland and the UK at that point, his abolitionist stance was the same as William Lloyd Garrison's, which was that the North needed to separate from the South. And he was using that in his speeches a lot because he was drawing parallels with the repeal movement in Ireland as this idea that mm. you needed to separate from the other, just like Ireland needed to separate from Great Britain British. generally. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. One, actually, it was also interesting. I was reading a little bit about his trip and his planning of the trip with William Lloyd Garrison. And there was this article I was, I was reading was throwing out this argument that the, the trip to Ireland was actually really strategic because he and William Lloyd Garrison felt like in order to win over Irish people in the United States, 
they needed to win over Irish people in Ireland before they came to the States because the Irish that were immigrating to the United States, some of them were oppressed and felt oppressed in Ireland and were moving to the States as this like, now it's time for me to move to the mm. land of the free and I'm going to be free. And so once they got to the States, even people who had been very sympathetic in Ireland to the abolitionist movement in the States were now much less sympathetic because they were more concerned with looking out for their own social and economic standing and were trying to assimilate into white America because they were at the bottom of the totem pole of the white mm. immigrants. And there was this idea that aligning with the African slaves of the United States and the abolitionist movement was holding them back mm. from attaining their own acceptance wow. into white society. So it was made more difficult to get allies mm. once they were in yeah. the U.S. That reminds me, I'm going to paraphrase this horribly, but this idea of like James Baldwin's where, you know, Americans like need to have black people be like the quote unquote, like lowest so that they can be like one rung higher. That's an idea that's more important to white people than it is to black people who are put into that box. But I see that with the Irish coming and being like, well, we, we might as well be not on the bottom rung. But yeah, that's, yeah. that's interesting. And I wonder if that if Frederick Douglass being in Ireland changed any any minds of people who eventually made their way over to the United States. Yeah, the article was sort of positing that this was um, something that they were thinking about and that Frederick Douglass already was like sort of aware of what he was going there to do, as opposed to some other strains of the narrative are mm. like he was caught off guard by and, and sort of like learned and adapted in this new philosophy when he was there. And I think there is an, probably an element of truth to that, that like when you are actually physically there, you see and understand things in a different light and it, and it really it solidifies the changes in how you think about the world, um, but that he was also going there with the goal of trying to enlist as many Irish people as possible to the cause yeah. of the abolitionist movement in the U.S. because the ultimate goal was the f to, to, to free the slaves and that this was all part of that. But anyway, so he comes back to the United States. He boards a similar steamship and actually is tr once again treated as as soon as he gets back on the boat there's this like mm. questioning about his ticket and if he has the right you know if he's like purchased the wrong ticket and he's again thrust back into this culture of different tiers based on race and it reminds him again that he's heading back into the belly of the beast to fight mm. the fight again yeah Ugh, how jarring. But he returns to the U.S. He starts his own abolitionist newspaper called the North Star. Um, and then uh, he's, you know, for the, the rest of his career, he's he's working on his with his own newspaper and um, in conjunction with other abolitionists on other journalistic projects and other newspapers in various alliances. And there are breaks in his alliance with um with William Lloyd Garrison and other abolitionists at different points over the minutia or some you know some of the nuances of what their stances are. Well, I think it's interesting because we've talked about how, you know, Garrison was for disunion and stuff because there was this uh book review in the New York Times this week that sort of fit in so well to this, which was about how Garrison believed the Constitution was fundamentally a uh pro-slavery document. 
And so he would curse the Constitution. And, and Douglas came to believe that it was an anti-slavery document if you read it right. So they split on this question, which we're still like wondering about today, mm -hmm, which I mm -hmm. find to be pretty fascinating. Yeah. And he went on to continue to give speeches when he, when he came back from Europe with this broader understanding of equality and discrimination, not just based on color, but also on religion and class and sex. Uh, he was a big proponent of uh, women's suffrage and women's rights. And he was actually the only African-American at the Seneca Falls Convention, which was sort of the initial stages of fighting for women's suffrage in the States. He also, he and his wife participated in the Underground Railroad. They gave refuge to fleeing slaves coming from the South. And uh, he and he also realized the power of of the image and photography, and he made sure to be photographed as much as possible because he believed that if his image could get transmitted more frequently, that um, that that would help his cause. And there are lots of photographs of him at different points in his life when he's younger and yeah. then as he gets <laughs> older. So you, there's a lot of photographic evidence, which I didn't quite think about. That's so interesting because we just talked before the show about you know, promoting yourself and technology and social yeah. media. And it sounds like he was like in his day, like very much aware of what it took to make sure people were talking about you. Yeah, he was hustling. He was hustling on the gram. <laughs> hustling on the gram. But he also like he becomes so well known. Um, he consults with Lincoln during the Civil War. He helps recruit uh, black soldiers during the Civil War. A couple of his children fight in the Civil War. And then later under Benjamin, President Benjamin Harrison, your favorite mm. president. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He's the I one just, everyone always forgets, Benjamin Harrison. <laughs> yeah. Under the most forgettable president ever, Benjamin Harrison, <laughs> he, um, he actually becomes the top U.S. diplomat to Haiti and the Dominican Republic uh, in the late 1880s. And then he continued to travel. He took a big trip uh, to speak at various places in England. He returned to Ireland, France, Italy, Egypt, Greece. Um, wow, which is some intense travel for the uh, late 19th century. Yeah, a lot of steamships. Probably. <laughs> probably so, yes. I wonder if he was getting the first class, though, at that point. I hope so. I hope so. I feel like probably, but... Probably, yeah. right? Europe? I, I think so. After the Civil War and after, well, uh, uh, yeah, maybe during that period. Yeah, I don't know. He was also traveling at that time with his second wife. So his first wife passed away mm -hmm. and he remarried a white woman um, who um, was an abolitionist. And she was actually, she was also like, I don't know, 20 years younger than him. She was much younger than him. There was an uproar. No one liked it. His kids, his the children of his mm. deceased wife were not happy with it. Uh, his his n his new second wife's family, Helen Pitt's family, they were not happy with it. Uh. America broadly was not happy uh, with the arrangement. Um, but they said, you know what? I'm kind of amazed, actually, because I don't think it was legal in the U.S. Right. This was well, probably... I guess it depends on what state you were in. So they were living in, well... He was he was living in New Bedford, Mass, and then they moved to Rochester. So it would depend on the laws in either Massachusetts or New York at that time. Mm. Could be. Right. I guess it took until like the 50s or no, 60s for like a national. That right. was the Loving versus Federal law. Virginia. Yeah, that was much, much later. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
Hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, so that's the story. <laughs> he took a trip. His perspective changed. Story. His life was enriched. He came back a different man. All the, all the things that travel can do. Yeah. Ugh. I think he was a big deal to the end of his life as well. I, I remember reading somewhere that he like gave a huge speech, or not, maybe not a huge speech, but a speech, and he, there was a standing ovation, and then a few days later, he died. So like until the very end, he was still very well regarded mm-hmm. and popular, and people wanted to hear what he had to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, I think that's our show for, for today. Thank you for listening. And if you want to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, check out at yesterday in Trav, um, or you can email us at yesterday in travel at gmail.com. Yeah. And, and we'll check you out next time. We'll have another episode. Come. What's our next episode, Kalina? Um, I, uh, I don't know. I think it might be, it might be Cuba related, but I'm not hundred percent sure that's what we decided on. Uh, season two. No, next episode uh, is going to be, Colombia. We're going to talk about the actually recent cable Ooh. car, uh, the, the cable cars that they built. Yeah, in it'll be fun. We'll have to learn the difference between cable cars and funiculars because I don't know what it is, but funiculars are a fun word. Yeah, these might be funiculars. <laughs> they might be the same thing. Um, cool. Cool. Yeah. So um, yeah, check us out. Subscribe. You know, like, download, review, post, share, um, All shout, of it. tell. You know, all the things. Pass it pass the word along. And yep. uh we will we'll see you next week. We'll be back soon. 